Well, when I started this book, I was 30 years old. And when I finished, I was 35. And I was a young father uh, with, at that point, two sons. My daughter had not yet been born. And uh, I, I thought a lot about family, about the role of a father, uh, about the difficulty of being a father, the great challenge of doing it well. And uh, when you take five years to write a book of history, history continues to be created along the way during those five years. And in this instance, um, while I was at work in my research on where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn, the mayor's son, Ivan Allen III, committed suicide at the family farm in Heard County. And um, I remember going to see Mayor, mayor Allen in his office and, and I had gone to the funeral and I had seen Mayor Allen there and he looked broken. He looked um, like he'd aged 10 years in the, you know, I'd probably seen him a month before. And I remember him at Westview Cemetery when, this, when the funeral ended, taking his hand and rubbing it softly across the side of his son's casket. And, and, you know, this was the hardest hit he had taken in his life. This was a man who once climbed atop a police car with a megaphone in hand trying to calm a, a riot in, during the 1960s uh, in Summerhill, a race riot. Uh, he was, he proved to be a tough little guy, uh, but this was beyond him. This was, this broke him. And, and he asked me at one point, how are you going to handle Ivan's situation? And he always referred to it as Ivan's situation. And I'd given it considerable thought. And I said, well, Mayor Allen, my book, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, is a book about family. It's a book about Atlanta. Um, the death of your son is centrally about family, and it takes from the city one of its uh, best, most prolific uh, civic leaders. I, I mean, he raised money to, for Atlanta to uh, form its Olympics bid. He had raised money for the Carter Center. Uh, he was uh, following in his father and grandfather's footsteps as an Atlanta. Uh, civic leader. Uh, and Mayor Allen accepted that. He accepted that. He did not try to keep me from writing about it. Uh, and I did write about this, the suicide. I did not come to any deeper understanding as to why Ivan Allen III had put a gun to his head at the age of 53. Um, what I found is his closest friends knew that there were a lot of pressures on him in business, the business had uh, the Ivan Allen Office Supply Company, which Ivan III ran, uh, was uh, suffering declines in, in revenues three straight years for the first time ever. Uh, and he, he just continued to, every night he would be out as uh, you know, a part of another civic cause and committee. Uh, and, and so um, I wrote about it and when the book came out, um, I got two copies early, and I gave one to Maynard Jackson and one to Ivan Allen Jr. And as you know, it's not a short book. It's 554 pages. It takes a while to read. But I think I heard from both mayors within a week's time. And Mayor Allen called me to his office. 
and he said, uh, I've read your book and I'm waiting, waiting. And he said, I think it's magnificent. And, and as I say, I, I'm not looking for friendship here. I'm looking for respect. I'm looking for respect for what my ambition is to tell a sprawling story in this case. I later learned that uh, Mayor Allen, as soon as he got the copy of the book, uh, had his secretary make photocopies of chapter 29, which is the 12 or 13 page chapter on the death of Ivan III. I think that is what the family was waiting to see and worried about. And um, uh, I think the family treated the entire book, not just that uh, chapter on Ivan III, but the entire book with a great deal of uh, appreciation and respect. And so too with the Dobbs family, uh, so too with Maynard Jackson. Um, you know, we, we, had a book party on uh, May 14th, 1996, in the Hurt Building, uh, the City Grill, when the book came out. And I have to tell you, it was a pretty fantastic party because, uh, and it was unusual. It was very unusual in Atlanta because in that room, on that night, you had Coretta Scott King and four Atlanta mayors. You had old Atlanta, new Atlanta, black Atlanta, white Atlanta. And I assure you in 1996, that did not happen very often. And, and for me, there was this, this rush, this, this first book when, when um, the book was first delivered to me, uh, I got a call at my office and the security desk downstairs at the Atlanta Constitution. And they said, a package is here for you. And I knew what it was because my publisher had told me it was coming. And I took the package and I went to a quiet space and I opened it and there was the book. And and I remember trembling, trembling. It's like, wow, it's a book. It's really, it's a book. It it was this um, profound sense of satisfaction that I had climbed that Everest uh, with more than 500 interviews and 500 pages and uh, 5,000 different small stories embedded in it. And uh, at the party, it was affirmed. But at the end of the party, I had this sinking sense almost that as everyone left, I, you know, the African-American folks went to, to the African-American side of town, the white folks went to the white side of town, and it was like the parallel lines of Atlanta came into play again. Um, you know, integrated by day, but segregated in matters of the heart. And that's the way it was still in 1996. I revere history. History speaks to me because there are such important lessons to be learned from the past. Chuck is standing down there in the midst of all this. Chuck, what is the mood down there? 
Well, Sandra, a lot of anticipation, obviously, and I must tell you that as a native Atlanta, I am most proud of what I have seen here this morning. This city has supported this bid for the last four years and gotten behind it. As you heard Commissioner Lomax say early, it has been the spirit of the people that has made the difference. And I have to tell you, as we await the next hour, an hour that I think will be the most important in the history of this city since General Sherman marched through here. And as far as what will happen, who knows? I will tell you this, regardless of the outcome, Atlanta has been a winner. They've been a winner in the presentation. They've been a winner in the way they've handled themselves. And this city is now an international city. There's no two ways about it. Sandra. The International Olympic Committee has awarded the 1996 Olympic Games to the city of Atlanta. is in Atlanta, Georgia will be the site of the 1996 Summer Olympics. What a tremendous moment going on right now at the Olympic uh, meeting there in Tokyo and of course here in Atlanta as well. There you can see Maynard, Maynard Jackson, uh, the former mayor, Andrew Young, uh, just thrilled. Billy Payne has to be in tears at this moment. What a tremendous moment. Now let's go quickly to underground Atlanta. You can see what's going on there. Those people are happy. There's no doubt about that. They are just thrilled at this point to see exactly what's going on. There are hugs everywhere, cheers everywhere. It is a dynamic moment for the city of Atlanta. Look at the fireworks there at Underground. Welcome to the Atlanta Legacy Makers Podcast. I'm Floyd Hall, outside of Centennial Olympic Park. This is episode seven, which corresponds to part seven of the Gary M. Pomerantz book, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, A Saga of Race and Family. You heard Gary's voice in the open, revealing some backstory on writing the book. Part seven of Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn is entitled Olympic City. And in this episode, we'll get some perspective from artist and engineer Rayana Brown and Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroki. Now, when Atlanta hosted the 1996 Olympic Games, the Centennial Olympic Games, it marked a tremendous spike in growth for the city. And many people often cite that as a dividing line. There's pre-Olympics Atlanta, and post-Olympics Atlanta. So for this part of the book, I wanted to get some insight on Atlanta as an Olympic city from the perspective of a public official. So I reached out to Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroki to get his thoughts. My name is Amir Faroki, and I sit on the Atlanta City Council. I represent six neighborhoods, downtown, midtown, and four neighborhoods to the east, the old Fourth Ward, Inman Park, Ponce Highland, and Chandler Park. Um, I'm the child of two educators from very different backgrounds. My mother was a eighth-generation Georgian. Her side of the family went back into the 1700s in Georgia. Uh, and my father immigrated to the U.S. from Iran in the 
mid-1960s, and I uh, met my mother when he was studying at Atlanta University, and uh, they lived in the same apartment complex. So, uh, yeah, I guess I came to Atlanta through my parents, who both came to Atlanta in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, so that's a quick snapshot as to how, how I came to be here uh, and, and where those roots uh, lie. When did you become aware of the role of Atlanta's mayors? Um, I guess, who was the first mayor that you could recall um, yeah. being mayor? So I, I, I recall, you know, they, they alternated. I can't recall if I first recalled Mayor Jackson or Andrew Young. Um, but, it, you know, I, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in Marietta. Um, but the the time in which I think I was keenly aware of the mayor, separate from any civil rights history that may be associated with any of our previous mayors, um, was during, frankly, the push for the Olympics and winning the Olympics uh, when it was announced. And seeing uh, Mayor Jackson and the Atlanta contingent just euphoric, uh, I think was one of these moments that you go, oh, that's our mayor, that's our team, and we won, right? Uh, and I was, you know, I was in middle school, uh, late middle school at that point. But that's that's probably my first memory of. Um, now there've been conversations in, in the house about Atlanta politics and the mayor, but um, that's really my first memory of Atlanta leadership, Atlanta mayoral leadership. Well, that's a great segue because this chapter of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn is entitled Olympic City, and it really dives deep into the the lead up to the Atlanta Olympic bid. And I guess you mentioned some of it in your previous uh, answer, but um, what do you recall about Atlanta um, winning that bid? Or I guess what was the energy that you can recall around the city um, as, as the run up for that bid uh, was happening? Yeah, I was, again, I was in middle school, but I, I remember there was a tremendous amount of excitement throughout the city. I mean, it was, it was, when I look back on it now as an adult, there's a handful of moments when the city really comes together and pulls in the same direction. Uh, you know, when the Braves had their run in 91 and won the World Series in 95, you know, pushing and, and pulling for us to win the Olympics. Another moment, uh, you know, whenever our sports teams uh, make it to the top, which is rare, uh, there's these moments where people come together or around crises, but that was one where, and look, I may have come at this from a, the rose-colored lenses of youth, but um, at the time, uh, it was really exciting. I mean, I remember, you know, we would have um, classroom activities around it, learning about the, using it as an opportunity to learn about the world. Um, I remember we had a member of the, the International Olympic Committee came and visited my school, and we had prepared for a week or two to sing songs for him and, and perform performances. Um, as part of the recruitment uh, and seduction battle that our that ACOG, the Atlanta Community Olympic Games, was was doing to win over members of the IOC, um, and then as you become older, uh, you, you realize what a bold, crazy idea it was for Atlanta to even think it was worthy of the Olympics for the hundredth anniversary of the games. As a child, like of course, why not? This is my hometown. It'd be great to have the Olympics here. It'd be what a tremendous fun it would be. Um, but then when I got to adulthood, you know, like, oh, that was uh, just remarkable ambition and boldness on the part of Billy Payne and others to buy into the vision 
and to find the resources to do it. Um, and, you know, I think maybe with some cynical eyes, you could say maybe there was some, uh, as we've seen, some uh, underhanded dealings along the way that Olympic bids have gotten caught up in um, since then. But, you know, it, 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 it was personification of what Atlanta has for century plus been known for, which is this unabashed boosterism, the sense that we are bigger than we actually are, uh, and that don't worry, we're going to grow right into the into that ambition and that that vision. It's like getting a pair of a pants that are too big for you when you're a kid, and your parents are like, don't worry, you'll grow into it. That's kind of how we how we are, you know. I think I remember I once had a conversation with Mayor Marcel, and he, the former Mayor Marcel, and he he mentioned that as soon as there was a flight from Hartsfield to the Caribbean, they were touting we had that we had the international airport and papers all over the country. As soon as there was a a bus shuttle. Uh, from Linux Mall to somewhere else in the city, we had a rapid a bus rapid transit system uh, or a public bus system. And um, you know, someone someone else once told me that they grew up in Chattanooga, and his father would would lament, uh, or I guess pejoratively say, when they would drive into Atlanta, you know, if Atlanta could suck as hard as it blows, you'd have the ocean right here at Atlanta's footstep. Uh, which, you know, goes part and parcel with this sense of, you know, we fashion ourselves as um, either as a global or national city or wanting to be one. And pursuing the Olympics was part and parcel of that. Uh, it's been part of our DNA to do just that. Um, so um, that, I think there's, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, and that's a whole other conversation. But um, I remember very vividly just the excitement around, um, you know, where are we going to get the games? Why we should get the games? And when we won it, it was just this sense of euphoria. You know, the scene, the, the iconic scene at Underground of thousands of people waiting for the announcement and just erupting and, and cheers and Juan Antonio Samaranch, uh said Atlanta. Uh, that was a transformative moment for our city in ways that um, will shape us for generations and have shaped us already. Amir, I think that you you mentioned the the transformation um, that happened as a result of that of that moment, and I think that a lot of people who live in Atlanta now, um, oftentimes, sort of refer to this pre or post Olympics moment um, in terms of either them moving to Atlanta or being able to maybe identify how the city was before that moment or even after that moment. Um, so, from from your perspective, um, what what was the first change that you could maybe point to? And maybe that's not even fair, but but I would ask, you know, what what did you notice in terms of the city changing after the after the Olympics happened? Like, what was what was something that, that you could feel that was different about Atlanta? Yeah, so I was uh, the summer of the Olympics. I was seventeen. I just graduated from high school, and it was the summer before I went off to college. And I worked as a volunteer at the Georgia Dome. Uh, where they had basketball and the gymnastics. They had split the Georgia Dome in half. And so, you know, that just gives some context that I was up close to the games, but also still fairly young. And so my, I think my perception of what it meant to the city uh, was still fairly uh, formative. Um, you know, I remember in the moment realizing, oh, there's a lot of preparation and infrastructure improvement happening. Um, but it wasn't until that I until I graduated from college and, and 
small school and came back um, that you see kind of the physical shifts, whether it's the Chain Olympic Park or the shift toward um, development in town, which to be fair is also a national trend along the same years. Um, but to me, the, the, the biggest shift was that people knew about Atlanta, whether nearby or globally, and that people were flocking here for jobs either before or after the Olympics. And so the Olympics helped jumpstart a lot of that. Um, I can't tell you how many people I meet, even to this day, who say, oh, I moved here in 94 or 96 or 97 because of the Olympics, you know, something related to the Olympics. Uh, so it, as much as we talk about the airport, which is critical, and our institutions of higher learning and our, our job our job base, um, you know, the, the Olympics really hypercharged those assets uh, and helped shape a narrative that this was a place that um, was in the South, but global. Uh, and we can debate if that's fully true and, and we, we realize that full, full narrative or not. Um, and to me, it was, it was just, it, it, yeah, we can point to the park and developments and, you know, the, the legacy of the games, but um, it was really just the, this shift in people really moving here to, to build their life. Well, as we fast forward um, to, I guess, your um, perspective as a as a city councilman and having a much better and clearer understanding of how politics happens in Atlanta, how people have to um, craft a vision and get people to buy into that vision, um, I would ask you to think now with your current filter, what would you say now, um, or I guess how do you perceive the 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 push to get the Olympics in terms of what had to happen with all of the support um, what do you perceive as the I guess the amount of work that it took yeah I mean it, it takes um, you know there's that famous YouTube video of a guy dancing by himself uh, on a hill and all these people are looking at him like he's crazy and then he's crazy until one person joins him, and the next thing you know, everyone's joining him. And I think that's that's part of what happened here. But you factor in um, kind of the the role that race and our historical um, dance between black and white, uh, political and business power, um, really kind of came together in that moment. Because in some ways, it was a culmination of a lot of the work of the last or the previous. 30 years, right? Coming out of the civil rights movement, you know, with this kind of pragmatic, or coming through the civil rights movement with kind of a pragmatic approach to um, to civil rights, kind of business first, say too busy to hate. You know, even Mayor uh, Mayor Mayor Allen, you know, kind of was initially a, a segregationist, then became kind of a pragmatic uh, integrationist, and then by the end of it, he he was was a believer in. Um, um, I think equality and, and purely on principle, right? It wasn't just pragmatic for him. And in many ways, the Olympics was uh, this melding of, of old and new, of, of the new power of the city, the ambition of the city kind of coming to fruition um, beyond just being a regional, a regional power. Um, and, you know, it's also a testament to leadership, right? That if you have a vision, even if it feels a bit far flung, uh, if you can articulate it and you focus on it and you stick with it, uh, oftentimes that persistence uh, brings folks along and that 
uh, self-belief brings people along with you. Uh, and I think we see that in politics, we see it in communities, we see it in business, we see it uh, in the nonprofit sector that people matter, leadership matters. And uh, with the Olympics, it was something that was bigger than us. So people could put their egos aside and personal battles aside and really buy into it because we knew that if we succeed in getting the Olympics, the benefits that would accrue to the city uh, would be um, not just immediate, but would, would filter on for, for decades and generations. And that doesn't mean that it's made everything the best or solved our problems. There's plenty of things that we grapple with today that we've been grappling with for half a century. Uh, but I think this notion that when there is something bigger than you that you can aspire to, a common goal or sometimes a common enemy or a common crisis, you see folks pull together in ways that they may not on a day-to-day basis. And I think we're going through that now and what's happening in America and the world, whether it's with COVID or whether it's with, um, I think, a reckoning on, on race and bias uh, in our systems. Um, so that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, I think it's a combination of leadership, people with a vision, and the right uh, the right moment, you know, it's going to bring people together to lift everyone's boat. Brianna Brown is a dancer, choreographer, and software engineer who has been using her platform to tell Atlanta stories in a unique and innovative way. And she joins me to share some reflections on this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. Well, my name is Rayana Christia Brown, and I am an engineer and software developer, and I'm also a professional dancer and choreographer, and I'm the artistic director of Command Bay Dance Theater in Atlanta. Let's start, you know, sort of big picture. Um, this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn is entitled Olympic City, and mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'll be 25 years uh, in 2021 since Atlanta had the Olympics, since we hosted the Olympics here in the city. Um, so in thinking about this part of the book, what were your first impressions of of this part of the book? Yeah, um, it's interesting because I, so I was born in 1995, so I was one when the Olympics were here. So I don't really remember <laughs> at all. Um, but I do remember, like, growing up, seeing, like, we always had, like, cups with 1996 Olympics on it. I think I had, like, a duffel bag and, like, a sweatshirt and all, all of the paraphernalia that came along with growing up in that era. Um, so it, it was always just kind of, like, this thing that I knew happened and that I was alive for um, and that meant uh, that changed the city a lot and that meant a lot to people in the city. Um, but then also growing up, um, there wasn't really a lot of conversation about the Olympics necessarily, but then when I was in college, I, um, learned some more about like the complex history of the Olympics, um, and that it was great for Atlanta as far as optics, but it also set into motion, um, a like very large scale gentrification plan that is kind of just now coming to fruition um and so it, it was interesting to read about the olympics from a different perspective than from the one that i had the most information about which is more like i guess the the negative sides of the olympics being here um 
And then I think the other thing that were interesting to me about this section is it really like parallels what's going on right now as far as like the riots and protesting. There was a little bit about that in this section. Um, and it was interesting to see how um, respectability politics also came into play again, like as far as the Rodney King verdict and the response that was received from like the city on that, um, as far as uh, like the rioting and the way people were expressing their feelings. Um, I think they said something, Maynard said something about expressing it the right way. Um, and I think that really parallels what a lot of politicians are saying today um, about the protesting and the riots. And it was just interesting to see that parallel happen again and it be something that's going on right now. Um, oh, it was also interesting to me in this section to see the, like throughout the whole book, I know they paralleled the stories of these two different families, but it was cool in the epilogue section to see what coming home, I guess that's kind of the feeling that I got from that section, meant for um, Inman versus Maynard. And at the heart of that idea was always legacy, um, but it presented itself differently for each of them um, based on like their lineage and their race. And so that was interesting to see how that, the driving force of that was always legacy, but its manifestation of it was different for each of them. So keeping it on family, as you're reading this book, what are what are you learning about, I guess, family and, and legacy? And I guess when it comes to these names that you may have seen, you know, on streets or on buildings, yeah. what did what did it mean to read about how these names got to be so prominent? Yeah. I think it was uh it was an interesting experience because I know all these like I'm from Atlanta, so I know all these names. Um but they feel more like uh I guess like not legends, but kinda. <laughs> um, and so I know that their, I, previously I knew that their legacy was like, already spans AT, uh, Atlanta and was like very ingrained in all the way down, like you said, to the street name. But it was really interesting to read about like the internal family struggles of each family. Um, so that was new information for me. Um, I had heard some of it because uh, my family is three generations from it, like living in Atlanta on my mom's side. It might be four, actually, on my mom's side. So my grandma is like knows many of these people. Um, and one of my teachers actually uh, is Ray Ransom Coleman. She was my dance teacher. So um, it's just interesting to read about people that you've either interacted with or heard about in like a very in-depth personal way um, that you're not normally presented with like when you're learning the history of Atlanta usually you're like Ivan Allen donated all of this money and so he has like all these buildings on Georgia Tech's campus and stuff like that but you don't hear or really get the information um, of like how that all came to be um, and so that, I think the most new information for me was the internal family struggles because everybody's family has, you know, different things going on always. Um, 
and so I think it makes it it makes the history a little bit more personable to me um because it's like more relatable as opposed to it feeling like these big names and these big legacies that don't have any humanity behind them well let's dive into the text a little bit mm-hmm. um what are a couple of sections or segments of, of this part that you thought really stood out okay um uh, the first one is on it's on page five i think it's 44 at the bottom uh, when he says it's a great occasion maynard jackson began bundled against the cold i remember grandpa dobbs talking about how you can take auburn avenue all the way to peach tree um this one is stood out to me for more personal reasons um like i said my family's been in atlanta for a while and my grandfather used to always say like if he was saying something that was true he would be like does peach tree run the buckhead and that was like always his statement um for like of course pretty much and it was just interesting to me to see i guess in another family the prominence of peach tree and this idea that from Peachtree, you can get anywhere. And so then, like, moving forward from that, it brought more significance to the fact that uh, John Wesley Dobbs connects to Peachtree. Just because, like, I feel like if you, even if you not, aren't from Atlanta and you visited Atlanta, you know that there are, like, 12,000 Peachtrees, <laughs> Peachtree Northwest, Peachtree South Northwest, and all of these things. And I think it's a really, um, I guess, defining thing for Atlanta um and so having your legacy literally attached to that um like physically and like by words I guess um it just brought more weight to that for me um for sure and then the other passage would be on page 553 um it says so this was their land the trees knew them when Maynard Jr. went to visit the graves of his ancestors um, and I thought that was a very poetic line, um, especially indicative of the fact that a lot of things that are I is, are known to me and lots of other Black people, but I think are now coming even more to light in light of the social situation um, going on in the country. But it's very indicative of the fact that the United States was built by Black people, um, whether people want to acknowledge that or not. And I think it's very, it's very interesting way to put that, like the land knows them, the tree, the land knows that this was theirs and like that they built something here and that they created a legacy here. Um, so I really enjoyed that line specifically as well. When we think about Atlanta, um, and we get it in, in this book a lot, where we talk about Atlanta as a a booster city, you know, there's this Atlanta boosterism where we're always very proud to be from Atlanta. And when it comes to the Olympics, I think that is often cited as the most prominent form of Atlanta boosterism. You know, when we kind of all got on the same bandwagon to really push, push that forward. Um, What does that feel like to you? Not necessarily the Olympics, but sort of the fact that Atlanta boosterism is a part of our DNA. Um, yes, I feel like I definitely inherited that, <laughs> inherited that feeling in my DNA of like, you know, 
being like, you know, I'm from Atlanta and claiming Atlanta um, and not liking it when people say hot Atlanta because somebody says that. Um, <laughs> but just, uh, it's interesting. I think that uh, I'll talk a little bit about the Olympics first um, and then come back to that. But uh, like I said before, I think it is a very, for me, like looking back on it, the Olympics is a very complex moment. Um, in Atlanta's history because it got Atlanta a lot of attention. And like you say, it's a lot of pride behind it, but it also created a lot of pain for poorer people, especially homeless people, um, because of the way the city needed to look um, or the way they wanted it to appear for outside people coming in, which happens to a lot of, I've been doing research on that, and it happens to a lot of cities that do that the Olympics come to the poor people and the people um, who are more just disenfranchised, especially homeless people are often affected negatively by that. And so um, I think it's a, it was a very pivotal moment where looks were maybe prioritized over people. Um, and so I think that, I think that being from Atlanta, that Atlanta can do better in that than that in a lot of ways. Um, and I feel like for me, my personal, I guess, uh, pride for Atlanta is that I feel like we do have the ability to, to do so. And it's um, like, as Atlanta, it's our responsibility to push Atlanta to be better. Um, so that's part of the reason why I, I'm always so heavily involved in like social activism and different things, not because being from Atlanta, I think that Atlanta is perfect because I, I don't, um, but I expect great things from Atlanta. Um, so I feel like that's kind of how like that prideful feeling kind of manifests as far as an action for me. Um, but also in addition to that, I still love Atlanta at the same time. Um, and I think that shows up a lot in the work that I create as far as my choreography. Um, like the last show I did, we had songs from like Outkast, Soldier Boy, um, like songs that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see on a concert dance, like contemporary style show. Um, and I feel like a lot of that comes from the fact that I am, like, born and raised here. And that stuff is in a, integral to me growing up and to, I think, the culture of Atlanta. And so I feel like if you want to tell a story about Atlanta, that's, like, a really important part to include in there. That, that uh, I forgot what you called it. Um, but that, that pride for Atlanta is a really important piece. Um, and I think the author of the book also did a, a good job of kind of showing that as uh, progressing this story between these two families. You know, as we, we wrap up and thinking about who all may read this book, whether it be students, whether it be um, older adults, or folks who come to this podcast in any form or fashion, um, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you would want folks to know about this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn? What about what about this book 
you know, kind of ties to Atlanta history and I mm-hmm. guess in a way that you feel like is is playing out in current day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to read the epilogue for sure. I think it like ties everything together really, really nicely. Um, so I would definitely say that. Um, and I would also say to look for the parallels between um, like what's going on right now and then what you read in the book in all the sections. Um, and I think like we're always told like history repeats itself, um, of course, but I think, I don't think that that happens in a way where it's not possible for change and for forward movement. And the, I, I think that the point of that statement is to um, encourage you to look for the parallels and not be hubristic and thinking, I'm the only one that's ever had this idea or I'm the only one who's ever uh, felt this because that's not the case. And I think you can learn from what's happened before in the context of the nuances of Atlanta and in the context of these legacies and understand like, okay, this is, this is the path to what I'm interested in making happen, or this is the path to this social change or to create this uh, space. Um, and I would also say um, in, in light of that, like Atlanta is not a paradise and it's not, um, I don't know, recently it's, in, in light of the recent social issues going on, um, I know it's been referred to as Wakanda, and like also it's often referred to as the like city to be the hay, and uh, Georgia Tech even says that sometimes like we have too much going. It's this culture of too much going on to worry about issues, um, but I don't think that's the case, and I think that Atlanta is a wonderful place, but it is not. I don't think it's a paradise that, and that's devoid of its issues. Um, but I still think it carries a really rich story of constant rebirth and reimagination and that the future of Atlanta will be no different. I think that's kind of what this uh, book to me kind of calls to over and over is that um, it is very cyclical, but it's not cyclical going in a circle. It's cyclical as far as like moving forward like it still goes through cycles um and that i would say i don't know that line about the land knowing them really stuck with me so i feel like when it as far as when it comes to if you want to enact change in the city or you want to um i don't know just feel feel like at home i guess i'm not really sure um but just knowing that the land knows your ancestors and your people like you, you're not alone in this, uh, I guess, struggle for a better Atlanta or for a better um, just change, I guess. So those would be the, the takeaways, I would, I would say. Thank you to Rihanna Brown. Thank you to Amir Faroqui. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Atlanta Legacy Makers podcast, and I hope you're enjoying the book Where Peace Tree Meets Sweet Auburn. Part seven is in the books. Pun intended. We're done, but we're not finished. Up next is the epilogue. So let's keep reading a little while longer, and we'll talk about it on the next episode. Until then, 
I'm Floyd Hall, and forever, I love Atlanta. Atlanta Legacy Makers is an initiative led by Central Atlanta Progress and the City of Atlanta. Special thanks to author Gary M. Pomerantz, lecturer at Stanford University in the graduate program in journalism. We heard Gary at the very beginning of this episode talking about some of the backstory of writing where pastry meets Sweet Auburn. And we're thankful and thrilled to have Gary's perspective throughout this project. Special thanks to our amazing partners, Atlanta Downtown Improvement District, Atlanta Public Schools, Constellations, Gene Kansas Commercial Real Estate, the Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts at Georgia Tech, One Atlanta, and Supporter Report. Atlanta Legacy Makers is hosted and produced by Floyd Hall, that's me, Music by Smith and Cash. Last but not least, thank you, Atlanta. <laughs>